Welcome back to Banter, a policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute in Washington, D.C. I'm Spencer Moore. And I'm Matt Winesett. And today we're joined by AEI Visiting Fellow Roger Noriega. Roger was Assistant Secretary of State for Western Hemisphere Affairs from 2003 to 2005. And before that, he served at the U.S. as the U.S. Ambassador to the Organization of American States. And he's joining us today, Matt, to talk about the ongoing crisis in Venezuela. Roger, welcome back to Banter. Thanks for being here. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for being here, Roger. So I assume that many of our listeners are probably like me in that we read about Venezuela every so often in the news, but we don't really have a deep understanding of the history of the country. So before we get into what's happening right now, could you give a brief overview of what's gone on from the time Hugo Chavez first took power up through the rule of Nicolas Maduro today? Sure will. Well, look, the uh, Venezuela's history really took a turn in 1998 when Hugo Chavez, uh, the... uh, failed coup leader, managed to get himself elected president of the country. Uh, He promised uh, to reinvent uh, Venezuela, uh, build what he was referred to as the Fifth Republic, uh, to serve uh, the interests of the poor people in Venezuela, a country uh, democracy uh, formally, but uh, really one in which a couple of political parties uh, traditionally just batted power back and forth to one another, and never mind the fate of a, a lot of poor people in, in this oil-rich country. And so Chavez came along uh, and uh, won the presidency fair and square and pursued a policy of concentrating power in the hands of the president, chopping up the Constitution, uh, changing the National Assembly and the courts, and uh, not only in the formal way, but uh, informally on the streets putting the police forces and the courts at the disposal of his political movement, uh, and uh, which means corruption and uh, using the powers of the state uh, against his political opponents, gradually encroaching into the private sector uh, to where uh, uh, it was, uh, he, he didn't have to worry about wealthy enemies uh, leading an assault against him. Uh, he died in 2013 and handed off power uh, to Nicolas Maduro, uh, who won a disputed election even then. And then um, this recent crisis is built around the fact that uh, Maduro stole an election, and which is completely dis- uh, disregarded or disputed by by any observer as a fair process. And when he pr- proceeded to take uh, office for another term on January 10th, people said enough. And so uh, you've seen the destruction of Venezuela, destruction of its institutions. Venezuela's capital city became, becoming one of the most dangerous cities in the world precisely because he broke down the system, broke down the rule of law, broke down institutions, uh, and established a narco-dictatorship, uh, criminality uh, that's really rather staggering. When you, when you use the term narco-dictatorship, what do you exactly mean by that? Well, in 2005, uh, Chavez sat down with leaders of the uh, Colombian guerrilla group known as the Fuerzas Armadas uh, Colombianas Revolucionarias, or Revolucionarias Colombianas, and uh, the oh. FARC, uh, the FARC, uh, which uh, was in 
really deeply steeped in the previous decade in narco-trafficking. And uh, Chavez essentially went to business with him. And uh, he uh, put oil revenue down to buy $500 million worth of cocaine uh, to fund the guerrilla movement, which was... uh, at war with Colombia, which is led by one of Chavez's nemesis, uh, uh, Alvaro Uribe. And uh, he, in a very colorful way, said, stick it to Uribe. And the FARC uh, waged war. Uh, it was a, the beautiful thing about this um, uh, kind of a, a arrangement is uh, narco-trafficking pays for itself. So they gradually overwhelmed institutions in Central America, uh, in Colombia, certainly in Venezuela, put them all at the disposal of narco-trafficking. And the generals themselves had to handle the cargo. And uh, so they set up the supply chain. And all these uh, Venezuelan generals spend more time really uh, managing the drug business under the leadership of Diosdado Cabello, former uh, vice president of the country, uh, former minister of interior of the country, and Tarek Al-Assami, who also held those positions before on other, on other occasions, uh, who are, along with Maduro, the, the troika that lead this criminal regime. Uh, it's So all of those senior figures are directly involved in narco-trafficking. It just so happens that Maduro's stepson and and uh, one of his close acquaintances, very close to the family, are now in orange jumpsuits in a federal prison in New York because they got caught you know, directly involved in narco-trafficking during the trial, citing the first lady as knowing all of these things and, and, and uh, uh, the, the leadership of the regime being party to their criminality. And so uh, it, it's a very sordid affair, and, uh, but it, it, it cannot be underestimated. They, they uh, just from cocaine trafficking, uh, can count on about $2 billion in annual revenue. And uh, there are other activities that are involved in all the way up the Central American Isthmus and, and, and right on to the American doorstep. Has that relationship with FARC changed at all in recent years? Wasn't there just some groundbreaking agreement? Uh, was it President Juan Michael Santos of Colombia who reached an end of the civil war with them? Has that bid into Venezuela's power at any all? Well, it's a, it's a great question because the FARC, uh, in theory, no longer exists. But what happened was that the elements of the FARC that were either young folks impressed into service in this guerrilla group or others who were not as efficient uh, or directly involved in the narco-trafficking demobilized themselves under this peace agreement. Uh, And the others who were very, very sophisticated units, very efficient when it came to narco-trafficking, stayed in the narco-trafficking business and now are operating with absolute impunity with their business partners in Venezuelan territory. Deep into Venezuelan territory, uh, encampments of those uh, narco-traffickers also uh, of the ELN guerrilla group uh, that operate with impunity. Uh, and so, if anything, the drug part of the business has become more efficient because they don't have to pretend to be fighting a war anymore. Uh, they're just in the cocaine business. Uh, and so the the FARC, uh, you know, they say that the FARC has broken down. It's a little bit as if the Beatles 
had 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 broken up and only Ringo Starr stopped playing uh, and nobody would really notice. And so uh, this is um, a, a very important part of this whole drama because what happens in Venezuela has a deep impact on, on neighboring Colombia. Speaking of neighbors, I mean, the United States is not so far away from Venezuela. I wonder what our approach has been to the country in the last decade or so. I mean, surely we haven't just let this go on without any, any punishment. Well, actually, we have. Uh, I mean, the Obama years, uh, I must say, is it, I'm not an extraordinarily partisan person uh, anymore uh, <laughs> because, frankly, the party, party leaders have made it very hard to be part, particularly partisan or devoted to, to a particular agenda. But uh, the, the Obama years were an absolute disaster for the Americas. Uh, completely taking their eye off the ball of these threats, uh, you know, in large part because they had bigger fish to fry. President Obama wanted to normalize relations with Cuba. Uh, President Obama wanted to deal with Iran. So the last thing you needed to do uh, was have, uh, you know, point out to the Obama administration that, uh, hey, this murder weapon has Cuban fingerprints on it and Venezuela is dead because of this or saying that uh, the Hezbollah had a presence and the Iranians were laundering money by the billions to evade sanctions with the help of of Hugo Chavez and and Nicolas Maduro. Uh, So it was a policy uh, of worse than neglect. Uh, I think that they have a lot of responsibility for the mess that was, uh, where this this cancer that metastasized uh, on the Obama watch. What is Venezuela's relationship with Cuba, Russia, and China, and some of these other states that traditionally the U.S. does not get along with? Well, Venezuela uh, is a uh, – the regime there is armed by the Russians, financed by the Chinese, uh, trained and really micromanaged by the Cubans, and used by the Iranians and Hezbollah and the narco-traffickers. And uh, the breaking it down a bit, the Chinese have put about $80 billion of financing in the last five or six years trying to make good on some investments. They have been repaid in the form of, of oil production, but that's harder and harder because the uh, of the complete mismanagement of the oil industry and and, and the production is, uh, has uh, dipped dramatically. So they don't, the Venezuelans literally don't have the petroleum to to, to, to send to, to service that debt. But the Chinese they see things in a longer run and they hope to eventually be paid back. But at this point, the checkbook is closed. The Russians, it's really for Putin, it's an opportunity to park a big uh, mess on the U.S. doorstep. Uh, you know, we think we're causing trouble for him in Ukraine. Guess what? Uh, I'm going to, with the minimum of effort, minimum of effort, sustain this big uh, headache for you guys, uh, which not only uh, destabilizes Venezuela and that part of South America, but all the way up uh, by through the drug business, sustains mayhem in Central America and 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 Mexico. So uh, that's those are the roles of those uh, superpowers. Cuba manages. Uh, 
the day-to-day affairs of, of the Venezuelan regime. They're, those intelligence officers keep an eye on the military. That's why you haven't seen a military rebellion. Cuban intelligence officers have trained uh, all of the Venezuelan military officers. Now, every ascending class henceforth from 2019 on will be those trained by Cuban uh, military folks and not by Americans until last year. Uh, that last year was the last class where mili- ascending military officers promoting classes were actually trained by American uh, military. And so that window's closed. And, and so now you have a, a cadre of, uh, of, um, of officer corps which has uh, no fond memories of the United States and are completely well-managed and understood, indoctrinated by the Cubans. Well, Venezuela has been in the news quite a bit, and we want to get into some current events. Uh, We're going to take a quick break, though, before we do that. Stay with us. We'll be right back with Roger Noriega. Hi. I'm Nat Malkus, host of The Report Card on the AI podcast channel. The Report Card features one-on-one interviews with policymakers, practitioners, and reformers at the center of education policy and practice. Listen to my interview with Governor Bruce Rauner on the Janus Supreme Court decision, or my recent talk with Jenny Radeski, author of the American Academy of Pediatrics Screen Time Guidelines for Children. Check out The Report Card by subscribing to the AI podcast channel on your favorite podcast player. And we're back with Roger Noriega. Roger, let's get into some current events. Um, Just this week, uh, several European powers recognized, uh, along with the United States and Canada and several other countries in Central and Latin America, uh, a gentleman named Juan Guaido, young guy, 37 years old, as the rightful president of Venezuela. Uh, Why don't we start with who Juan Guaido is? Where did he come from? What are his politics? And what is he trying to achieve? Well, it's interesting because uh, I realized how hard over um, uh, Hugo Chavez was against the United States when he refused the delivery of military assistance uh, in La Guaida. Uh, In that very year is when Juan Guaido, uh, he was growing up in that very community. Mm. And uh, so... It was interesting to have the history circle back uh, that uh, he, he is, uh, as I understand it, uh, had made, made his living in the fishing business, a business which the uh, regime has kind of suffocated, uh, has a modest income, uh, just a, a guy who has a history of participating in these pro-democracy protests, and a, a fellow plucked out of obscurity, really, by the leader of his party, uh, Popular Will, or Voluntad Popular, uh, the leader of which is uh, Leopoldo Lopez. Uh, And he was picked out of obscurity. A lot of people think that, frankly, uh, Leopoldo wanted the uh, attention to be on him. And if he had to pick somebody, he's going to pick somebody who's not going to be a huge rival. Uh, A lot of my friends were saying... Uh, Guaido will follow instructions and, for example, not declare himself to be president uh, after January 10th, but rather go along with the collective will of the National Assembly, where the National Assembly would collectively hold the executive powers. I said, no, no, uh, he's going to take the presidency because 
once you get your second or third phone call from Mike Pence or John Bolton or uh, other U.S. officials, you're going to start feeling like I've got to do this. And the Americans were insisting on it. And sure enough, he declared uh, that leadership. I think he, you know, he's he's a better communicator than he was just two weeks ago. I think he's, uh, you know, been. Uh, very uh, successful in sort of rallying public opinion uh, around this cause uh, of, uh, of a National Assembly-led transition, a peaceful electoral transition, uh, and now the delivery of humanitarian assistance. Uh, so he is, uh, you know, a man of, uh, you know, on the scene who's showing the leadership and showing the courage and has the uh, constitutional lawful role uh, of the, as the new president, interim president of, of, of Venezuela. And, and because the international community, it's the United States, certainly the OAS, the Lima Group, have chosen this kind of legal construct, the, you know, the, the constitutional succession, it's managed to generate you know, dozens of other countries around the world recognizing him as the legitimate leader. So this is a, an achievement for, for U.S. diplomacy and, and the work that Leopoldo Lopez and his family and other opposition leaders did by traveling the world, telling the story about what's happening in Venezuela. And now you have a world that's more educated and prepared to help. Yeah, so Guaido now has our support, the support of many European countries, Latin American countries, but not everybody seems to be lining up behind him. Just last week, Representative Omar, a new congresswoman from Minnesota on the more progressive side of the Democratic caucus, she tweeted out, a U.S.-backed coup in Venezuela is not a solution to the dire issues they face. Trump's efforts to install a far-right opposition will only incite violence and further destabilize the region. Do, what do we know about Guaido's politics? Is he like? Is he is he a far right politician? Mm. Is is he comparable to anybody else? Right. Uh, I'm sure she's a nice person, uh, but everything about that tweet is wrong. Everything about that tweet. Uh, first off, he's a socialist. All of the all of the member parties of the uh, Mesa de Unidad Democrática, the so-called MUD, some would say aptly called MUD. MUD uh, are socialists, and that's why a lot of people are saying this is a lot of fuss uh, to get, to install a socialist uh, in power in Venezuela. You would have thought that uh, the socialism has done all the damage it can do in Venezuela. But Guaido is a you know man of the people. It is it is he's not merely a U.S. backed leader. He's a leader backed by the international community, which, I, as I said, has recognized the, the uh, legal basis for his assuming the, the powers of the presidency. Uh, and, um, and so, I, I've, you know, there's some people still have a learning curve on this. I, I must say that one of the really refreshing things about this issue is the bipartisan support uh, that this cause enjoys. Uh, I remember having a conversation with Bob Menendez, who's now the ranking member on the Foreign Relations Committee uh, again. Uh, and uh, he, he said to me in this private conversation, uh, I'm sure it wasn't completely off the record, you know, when, when Trump's right, I'll be with him. And when he's not, I'll oppose him. And on Venezuela, he's doing the right thing. And uh, so I think the president deserves credit for that. And but also recognizing that we, we really need to count on a lot of support across the board in the Democratic Party and the Republican Party to sustain this kind of policy and try to 
maximize the benefits for the Venezuelan people and for the region and our interests there. One of the big sticking points with Guaido really taking office in Maduro, sort of ceding power, is the fact that the military in large numbers have not uh, given up loyalty to Maduro. Do you expect that that will occur in the next several weeks and what's holding them back? Well, as I explained, the the Cubans have uh, have these people under uh, surveillance for the last five, six years in a very intense way, really for the last decade. Any military officer who showed any sort of independent thinking uh, off the reservation in terms of the revolution uh, uh, was forced out uh, or career was ended, they're put under house arrest. Uh, some of them have been jailed. You have probably 250 people now in jail for uh, coup plotting, uh, all detected by either the Cubans or the Venezuelans' own internal security apparatus. And so, I, I but I have to say, I have a couple of uh, acquaintances, I dare say friends, but uh, they probably would not want to own up to that, who were former Chavistas, uh, or who, you never are former Chavista, really, I mean, because they had, it's, the bad judgment is probably ingrained in them, but <laughs> the these are people that knew Chavis personally, and were in one, uh, really both in the military, uh, who estimated for me that 80% of the Venezuelan military would not lift a finger to help Maduro. Uh, and I think that's true. Uh, but up until now, he has not had to ask him to lift a finger uh, because he has these um, colectivos, they're called, modeled on the Iranian basij, sort of sh- uh, mobs, uh, sh- uh, uh, highly mobile on motorcycles and guns moving around and, and shooting people randomly to, to quell uh, demonstrations, to just to terrorize people and push, keep them off the streets. Uh the 2014 and 2017, these colectivos managed uh, to keep order, backed up by the National Guard. But when you never, we never quite got to where the regular army would have to deploy. And we were starting to hear anecdotes within the different units uh, saying, if we're asked to deploy to the streets, we will not. Some were in 2017, and they would do static static security, guard a perimeter, and the demonstrators would just avoid them. Um, but the, the the tactics are more sophisticated now. They they will they will they will not call on the army to 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 move because I think they will. Maduro knows that he can't count on the answer. So, the, but at this point, he doesn't have to. They have backed off. Uh, they have let people have their day, and, and because I think the, the regime is hoping to just kind of ride this out and let people who don't have enough money or time to find food to subsist on in that country uh, kind of burn themselves out, uh, and and so we will see what happens with the with the delivery of food aid, uh, whether the military tries to stop that and whether that becomes a choke point. My guess is they won't. They'll just let them burn themselves out. Every day that Maduro survives and it becomes apparent that the United States is not really prepared to use uh, military force uh, and unless provoked, uh, 
is a victory for the regime and for the status quo. And, and we're going to have to look for a plan B. Uh, you, you would think that that would be on the table already. Uh, but I think that the administration and the international community is going to have to consider what their next steps would be. Because I am convinced with what those Chavistas told me, 80% of the military, the rank and file, would not lift a finger to help Maduro. Their parents, their wives, their kids don't have any food either. The units themselves can barely walk with the full pack for two miles without collapsing. Uh, it's, a, it's a disintegrated uh, uh, military in certain ways. And uh, besides these elite units that they show off, uh, that military has a very limited capacity to do anything. And if, and if uh, shooting innocent civilians is what they're asked to do, uh, I think they might very well decline. And that would be a passive rebellion, but, but one that uh, Maduro might not be able to survive. So what does this mean for U.S. policy? Because a few days ago, John Bolton was photographed holding a yellow notepad that somebody pointed out had 5,000 troops to Colombia scribbled on it. And now Maduro saw that and was warning that Trump was trying to create basically another Vietnam, but in South America. I don't think many people seriously think we're going to send ground troops to Venezuela right now, but what are the next steps the U.S. should or should be thinking about taking? Well, I, I think I'm going to be very careful about what I say because, you know, I, John Bolton is somebody I've known for 20 years, and the whole team there I've known for many, many years, including Elliot Abrams, Mauricio Clavercarone, uh, good, smart people. But, you know, I think the U.S. Gover the US government as uh, the world's lone superpower, I think I referred to China and Russia as superpowers. Of course, that's not the case. But uh, say the United States as the lone superpower cannot be seen bluffing about the use of force. Uh, 5,000 to Colombia, a, fr a friend of mine told me about that. I was shocked because, you know, we sent 7,500 troops to Grenada. Mm-hmm. Of a country of 91,000 people. Uh, we sent uh, 25,000 to Panama, a country a fraction of the size of Venezuela. Uh, and by the end of the day, the Colombian foreign minister uh, dismissed these and said, we don't know anything about this deployment. So it sent a signal uh, that of, uh, of improvisation. Uh, for want of a better word. Actually, there are better words, but I'm not going to use them. Uh, it's, uh, that is not very uh, intimidating to the Venezuelans who can count, let us say Maduro, who can count on the support of the Cuban uh, regime, which has been watching the United States, watching our trigger finger for 60 years. Well, it's an ongoing uh, crisis down in Venezuela. We will see what happens. Um, we're out of time there. Roger Noriega, thanks so much for being with us. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. And thanks, as always, to our listeners for tuning in. If you're not already, we encourage you to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or the podcast player of your choice. And while you're there, leave us a five-star rating. You can also send comments, questions, and feedback to banter at AEI.org. We'll be back next week with another episode, but until then, for Roger Noriega and Matt Weinset, this is Spencer Moore signing off. <laughs>